Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 65 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is I Did Everything You're Supposed to Do and I Still Got Sick, an interview with Sarah Brunner. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Sarah Brunner. Sarah Brunner is a 33-year-old clinical dietitian from Northern Ontario, Canada. In 2014, Sarah Brunner was bitten by a tick. She was given a topical cream for her rash, but wasn't warned about any of the tick-borne diseases she could have contracted. Not long after, she began to suffer the flu-like symptoms and severe joint pain. By December of 2016, Sarah Brunner had to stop working because her pain was so severe that she couldn't grip a pen in her hand. She and her husband traveled to various places, including the Mayo Clinic, where no test came back with a positive result. That night, her husband began researching, found Lyme, and the couple watched Under Your Skin, a Lyme disease documentary. The next day, Sarah Brunner ordered an Igenix Lyme disease test. The Lyme disease test came back positive, and after the diagnosis, Sarah Brunner started on a treatment journey that included antibiotics and homeopathic remedies. Above all else, Sarah's tick disease journey taught her how she can help others in a similar situation. She hopes to one day create an online program that anyone can access to learn more about Lyme and nutrition. Hey, Sarah, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here, and I'm really excited to share my story and hopefully create a little bit more awareness and connect with more, more people who are also struggling with this. Well, thank you. We're really excited to have you share your story, and uh, we would like you to first introduce yourself to our audience. Where are you from, and, and, uh, and what do you do? I am from Canada, uh, actually in northern Ontario, so almost right in the middle of Canada when you look at it on a map. I'm 33 years old. I'm married to actually my high school sweetheart, so we've been together for actually half, half of my life I've spent with my husband already, which is pretty cool. We grew up here, and we chose to come back to northern Ontario and live here, so we get the, the best of both worlds. We get hot summers and cold winters, which as I'm getting older, I'm not thinking our winters are as fun as I used to as a kid. Sarah, can you share with us? what your life was like before you suffered your tick bite. Uh, what type of work were you doing back then? So before I got sick, I worked in a long-term care facility as a clinical dietitian. And I also had a private practice on the side where I saw clients in uh, a different capacity for health goals, weight loss, post-operative, like all sorts of things. I also taught yoga. And I also did all the bookkeeping for my husband's business. So I was really busy. I had a lot of goals and I was just working towards them. And what, what kinds of goals did you set for yourself and what were you doing to pursue those goals? So a lot of my, my goals professionally, I wanted, to, I wanted to create my own practice where I could really enjoy helping people on a, on a one-to-one experience. Uh, a lot of times when, at least here in Canada, when you see a dietitian, it's through a, a family health team or something like that. So they're restricted by time constraints, whereas a private practice dietitian, I wasn't. So I was able to kind of connect with my patients better and really help them achieve their goals through the ways that worked best for them. And then aside from professionally, I was also incredibly active. It was, I guess, the thing I did most outside of work was some sort of activity. So, I mean, if I wasn't teaching yoga, I was practicing yoga. I used to run half marathons. I usually did two to three every spring and summer. I mean, we, we don't live in a climate where we're out running half marathons in the middle of winter when it's 40 below Celsius. 
So I always crammed a few of those in every summer and I went to the gym regularly. I lifted weights. I was at the point where I was actually probably at my strongest and healthiest that I had ever been before I was bitten by a tick. And what kinds of personal goals were you pursuing? Were you and your husband planning to start a family? What, what types of things were you working on personally? I mean, I think our personal goals almost were on a bit of a back burner because we were working towards our professional goals first. We both took turns kind of supporting each other to do that. Years ago when I did my internship to become a dietitian, like we have to go to university first for four years and then be accepted into a dietetic internship. So when I did that, he worked his butt off to pay for all our bills so that I could achieve my goals. And then once I started working, we flipped roles and I took care of all of that while he started his business. So what he does for a living is build homes and lodges and that sort of thing in our area. So we've always kind of worked together to help each other achieve our goals in that sense. And then for anyone out there who has a business, it's not something you can really turn off. So for him, it's always been kind of a 24-7 thing. He's always on. So when it came to personal goals, we didn't really have anything outside of achieving our professional goals yet. And that includes like having a family. We got married in 2011, but we weren't in a hurry to have kids at that point. We both knew it was something we would like to do eventually, but we still wanted to, we were young. We still wanted to be young to put ourselves first, have fun and kind of achieve success professionally before we kind of moved into taking a step back and having a family. What type of things were you doing for your husband's business that he was newly developing after you had completed your professional education? At first, I was just supporting him emotionally kind of throughout it helping him not have to worry about the stress of bringing in money when you start a business. It's, it's a slow progression. So taking the financial stress off him was the biggest thing I did at the very beginning. And then by 2014, he got so busy that well, at that point I was waitressing on the side too, just because I didn't have enough to do already. I'm a, I was always a really busy person and I just, I, I did, I don't think I knew how to deal with downtime. So I decided I'd make some extra cash and work serving in a bar random nights of the week on top of everything else. So it was at that time where his business really took off and he said, Hey, you know what? Like I'm going to need more help from you. Like you can let go some of this other stuff. So I did. Um, that was like the only, only thing I let go of. I kept doing the rest of it. But at that point I started doing all of the books for his business. So more like the accounting side of it, not, the building side of it, I don't understand that stuff, but all the accounting and bookkeeping and bill writing, those things I started doing for his business in 2000, 2014, the same year I got bit actually. So now let's talk about the tick bite that you suffered. When did you suffer it? And where were you when you suffered the tick bite? It was in April of 2014. At that point, so like I, I mentioned, our weather here is a lot of winter, a lot of snow. So in April is when the snow just starts, like, you know, it's, it's basically gone by that point. And that's also the time of the year where my husband gets really busy. So we don't really go doing any kind of activities. So I wasn't out, you know, hiking through the woods, which we were surrounded by forests here, but I'm, I know for certain I wasn't out. I wasn't out in the forest. I wasn't out doing anything, but because we live surrounded by forests, there's lots of deer in town like people have to stop driving down our main roads because there's a deer crossing like it's just that's 
normal for us around here. So our best guess was actually that it was just a deer that was in our backyard and that we had two dogs at the time that one of our dogs brought that tick in and it might have found me after it found our dog because they always say like if I knew what I knew now when I was younger you could think of so many other things to explain what's happened but one of our dogs had actually started developing really odd symptoms around the same time I I did it was her knee it would get swollen it would hurt she couldn't walk she would be laying there completely fine completely comfortable and then just start crying and then it was about a two-year off and on span of this stuff happening and then she had an issue where she couldn't lift her neck anymore. Uh, her x-rays were normal at the vet. And then about two months after the ha thing happened with her neck and shoulders, she just suddenly died from heart failure. So now, now that we've kind of put everything together, looking backwards, we almost wonder if her and I were bitten potentially by the same tick and it found me after it found her. I want to walk back to that period of time where you were bitten by the tick. Can you share with mm -hmm. our listeners what you knew about ticks and tick diseases at that time? I knew nothing about Lyme disease. I knew nothing about ticks other than when they bit you, they would kind of like burrow in your skin. My husband used to plant trees, so he'd always complain about them. He, he's picked so many ticks off of him, whether they've been in him or on him. Like, it's actually ironic that I'm the one that's never seen a tick in real life. And I'm the one that got sick. So I didn't know anything about it. But like my husband's family is from Switzerland. And Switzerland and Germany, they've acknowledged Lyme disease for years. His family, they've had a few people who have been bitten, have gotten sick, but they've been treated right away. So he's known since a child that if you get bit by a tick, like you need to watch it. You need to pay attention. You need to keep that tick. He's known all of this. His mom's always been like on the ball when it comes to tick bites. So we were getting ready that morning together and he had noticed it was kind of on the back of my shoulders. So it's not somewhere I would see very often. And he noticed it. So he had told me like, you need to go see like a doctor. You need to get up to the clinic. And I just thought, Oh wow, this looks really weird. Like I was kind of like intrigued, but I did not take it seriously at all. I took his advice. I called and made an appointment I got in the next day, I saw a nurse practitioner and, um, and, and I mean, I don't remember all of this even because it wasn't, to me, it still wasn't a big deal at that point. I was there because someone told me I should go, but I do keep a copy of all my medical records. So uh, looking back at her note, you know, it, it even said I had been experiencing fatigue more than usual lately. So like I, I had really without realizing started developing symptoms at that point. There was a, a bit of a red ring around it, but it wasn't your traditional bullseye rash that you think of when you Google Lyme disease rash and Google pictures, that's what it shows you. It wasn't as pronounced as that. And I guess because of that, she didn't think it was uh, a tick bite. She asked me if I had been out like in the woods, hiking, that kind of thing. And then she just decided it was a spider bite and told me, you know, to pay attention if I started feeling flu-like or anything like that, I needed to come back up. But at that point, she had just gave me ointment to put on it. Like I had mentioned, I was always so busy and kept myself so busy that when I started to become so exhausted, I had already forgot about that bite. I didn't think anything of it. 
And I assumed I was that tired because I was so busy all the time. Now, when you met with your medical professional, did she suggest to you that you may want to use antibiotics prophylactically? No, not at all. So the only treatment advice that she had given to you was to use an ointment and to just go on about your life. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's part of it was because when she asked if I had been out, you know, hiking or in the woods and I said no, she immediately had ruled out the possibility. I, I wasn't given the option of oral antibiotics or an ointment. It was just, here's an ointment. If you start feeling worse, come back. So she didn't explore with you that you lived in a community where there were a lot of deer or that you had dogs or that there would be some other way that you could have come in contact with the tick other than going into the forest. You know, I, my memory of it, I don't really have it, but I, like, I can tell from her notes from my medical records, she actually did ask about my dogs. She, she asked the right questions, but I don't think that at that time, any of the medical professionals or most of them didn't realize how um, prevalent ticks are in our region and how much of them might actually be carrying the bacteria. So I, I think without having you know, that traditional rash without me being out hiking, without me finding an actual tick with that bite, I don't think she thought it was a possibility even. Sarah, had you ever taken ticks off of your dogs prior to the time that you were bitten by your tick? Nope, never. So Sarah, you went to the doctor, you had his rash, they gave you ointment and said you should be fine and you went on with your life. Now, Within a few weeks, your symptoms continued to progress despite the ointment and the fact that your doctor said you should feel better. So can you tell us how your symptoms progressed from that point forward? Yeah, so like I said, I was already tired. That was like the first thing that happened. And then the, the next thing was, it was kind of like a combination of my throat. I started to have a sore throat all the time. For, I remember months on end, I was constantly shining a flashlight in the back of my mouth looking to see if there's any white spots on it to see if I had strep throat. It would come for a few days, it would disappear again. And so I, then I chalked it up to, oh, I must be fighting a cold. And I kept telling myself that for months. And then I would say about three months after the bite, two months after the bite, my knees started to hurt really, really bad. And then I made another excuse for that because that was the time, that was the time that I was doing my yoga teacher training. So we were sitting on the ground a lot. So, so I just told myself my knees hurt because I've been sitting cross-legged on the floor for, you know, days on end. And then the next month I just woke up one morning and I tried to lift my arm up to drink my coffee. And I realized my arm wasn't going to lift that high. And there was nothing I could do to fix it. I didn't know what was wrong. I saw the chiropractor that didn't help. Uh, eventually, I did go to the doctor and they said I had tendinitis. But nothing I was doing was like a repetitive motion. So that, that didn't even make sense to me. But, you know, I rolled with it because I was, I don't know, I didn't know any better. I didn't think any different. That bite from months ago didn't even sit on my radar anymore. And then it was one month after my first shoulder and my arm, like well, once I couldn't lift that one, it happened to the other side. And I thought, okay, this is weird. Like, I, there, this isn't explainable. And that's when I started really paying attention and realizing something wasn't, something wasn't right anymore. And when I saw a doctor about the other arm, they just said, well, you know, you've probably been overcompensating with it because your other arm has tendinitis, so it's like secondary to the first side. So basically, try not to like keep doing <laughs> what you're doing. And 
I, at that point, I knew something wasn't right, and I knew that explanation didn't fit. I just had a gut feeling, and that's kind of where it was for the first three months. How many doctors did you see in total over the two-year window before you got diagnosed with Lyme disease? Uh, I, I saw quite a few. I, I actually think probably less than average. I think I, as long as my, my journey to a diagnosis was, I still feel like I had a fairly good experience compared to a lot of stories I've heard. But I saw a few nurse practitioners. I, I mean, I saw my own family doctor a number of times. Uh, a couple other doctors during walk-in clinics, emergency room visits, and then I was referred to a rheumatologist, I saw an allergist, gastroenterologist, a neurologist, an internist. Uh, we even went to the Mayo Clinic and I'd seen another rheumatologist and internist there. So I mean, overall, I guess 10, 10 to 12. That's pretty consistent with most of our past guests. The average, I believe, is around 10 to 12 doctors that you're going to see okay. before you get a diagnosis, although some see upwards of 20. And during this time, did any of your doctors suggest that it was a mental health issue and not a real physical issue? I had that happen about a year, a year and a half later. Um, at that point, it had started affecting all of my joints. So my wrists, my ankles, uh, elbows, uh, jaw, like all of them started getting affected but it would come and go uh there was nothing anyone could see it was just based on my explanation of how it was feeling and it, it was on the third follow-up visit with a rheumatologist and he like th like actually lifted his hands up in the air and said well i'm stumped i don't know <laughs> and that was kind of all he said to me but then after i got a copy of his note back to my doctor uh, he wrote that it was possibly Munchausen. So it, possibly this is all in her head. Um, it was really frustrating for me because I, I knew it wasn't. But you know, when someone makes a comment like that, when you're having those really bad days and you can't grasp what's happening to you or you're feeling defeated, those things come back and you wonder, am I exaggerating this? Is it? Maybe it is. You know, like it makes you question yourself. So Sarah, once this suggestion was made that you have Munchausen syndrome, did at any point anybody in your family sort of sort of walk back a little bit and think that maybe it was in your head as well? No, never. My family has always been amazing. So have my friends. I don't think anyone realized I was suffering as much as I was for that first year because it would come and go. Um, I could kind of rearrange my life to work around it when it showed up and when it would clear off again I would go right back at it like 10 times as hard it wasn't really until 2015 at the very at the end of the year my husband got a job contract up in Iqaluit um, and he was gone for five weeks and during that that time I started that's kind of when everything started snowballing downhill for me very fast and um, I, I wasn't sleeping I was in so much pain when he came home, he could see like an extreme difference from just the time he left five weeks prior. He, he commented that I cried in my sleep, that I whined in my sleep. At this point, he was starting to have to help me a lot just for like, you know, getting dressed and like the normal things that people do every day. Uh, he, he was he was helping me with all of those. I couldn't get up off the couch on my own anymore. I couldn't get into bed. So he was doing all of that stuff for me. And then by December and January, it was 
so much worse again. That there was, I think it was like January 20th or 21st of 2016. He was working late. It was like seven o'clock in the evening. I was on the couch. I felt fairly decent. I went to get up and it was like my brain and my legs didn't have any communication anymore. As much as I looked at them and willed them to move, I couldn't even shuffle my feet. I was lucky that my phone was beside me and I could call him and say, hey, I can't move my legs. You have to come home. So he did and he, he picked me up and we both sat there thinking like, what the heck just happened? Like, what, what is this? Like, you know, like it was so confusing and so scary. So Sarah, can you share with us how the developing symptoms impacted you personally and professionally? So for, in terms of work, I had to start taking time off. So my, my job in the long-term care home was part-time. So I worked 20 hours a week. Uh, that's how I was able to do all those other things on the side still. So my employer had always been really great about, you know, if you can't come in today, come in tomorrow or the next day, as long as you put those 20 hours in and your job gets done, we're totally okay with this. So they made it possible for me to stay longer because I could work around those fluctuating symptoms. But my wrists had always been a big, um, I mean, for, for me at work, I need to be writing, I need to be typing, flipping through pages. So when my wrists were, like, I remember sitting on the couch one day wondering if my bones were breaking, like they hurt so bad. So if you can't use your hands, it's really hard to work. So I actually have bought myself dictation software to try and like prolong my ability to stay at work. I'm a really short person. So most average desks are too big for me and my feet are hanging off my office chair. So my husband came in after work one day, measured everything and built me like a little platform so that I was properly seated at my desk. Like we did everything we could to try and make work more comfortable for me, to try and kind of mediate around the symptoms. And then um, it was in the summer of 2015 when my knees and my wrists got so much worse that I was starting to take a lot of time off work. And then by October of 2015, I had used up all my sick time. But I mean, I was also, it wasn't just my joints that were prohibiting me from effectively doing my job at this point like my head it wasn't clear I was so exhausted I I, hopefully they're not listening I remember waking up sitting up one day at my desk like I just fell asleep sitting straight up in front of the computer like it was hard to think through being exhausted it was hard to think through the brain fog that was coming with it so all of that kind of made work difficult I tried for as long as I could to stay I felt so guilty leaving work I loved what I did. I loved the residence there. But it was December of 2015 where I finally had to admit to myself. And it was after my husband came home too and said, like, Sarah, like, what's wrong with you? Like, saying, you can't keep doing this. You, you need to take a step back and figure out what's going on with you. That I went off work because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do my job effectively anymore. Sarah, how was the developing symptoms impacting you socially? I think one of my biggest social activities prior to being sick was kind of like a combination of being so physically active. Like I would walk our dogs like four to seven times a week and we would do like a one hour loop around town. And I always did that with my best friend. So we got to spend, you know, an hour every couple of days together walking, chatting. 
all of that slowly started to stop. I got to the point where, I mean, by, by 2015, at the end, I was declining uh, invitations to go do things, especially, you know, anyone who, even if you just have a cold, you, you know that at the end of the day, you start feeling worse. Like you, you wake up, you don't feel well. It takes you a little bit to kind of get into the groove of the day. And then you start going back downhill. And I mean, that's the same with this disease. I always feel worse at the end of the day. And so, you know, most of your friends, they still work full time. So when it comes to getting together with them, it's, you know, do you want to go for dinner? Do you want to go have drinks after work on Friday? And I was starting to decline those invitations as well, because one, I didn't feel well enough to do it. And two, I was exhausted. Um, so that my social life kind of suffered in that respect. But then I found 2016 was the hardest. And that was when I was at my worst, because I did have friends who understood entirely. And they did a lot of reading when I got sick to understand the disease outside of my own experience, but to understand how it affects the body and those types of things. And they were really awesome. They would come visit me on their lunch breaks and those sort of things so that I would still have that social connection in a way. But then other people, and it's at no fault of anyone's own. And I think that's one thing I'd like other people listening to this to try and understand is I've always felt like just because my life stopped or got put on hold because of this illness, I can't expect everyone else's around me to kind of halt as well. And that's what, when I have friends say, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I haven't seen you in a long time. I feel like a bad friend. I say, you're, you're not like, you know, just because my life had to get put on hold doesn't mean yours should too. So I think a lot of people, because they didn't see me, they didn't really understand how hard every day was for me. And they didn't understand when I would decline an invitation like I remember one time to go ice fishing, like, and they said, well, you can sit in the car once you get here. And I was like, yeah, but like driving on the ice road and then out to where like the fishing hole is, it's bumpy. And like that in itself is, it's too much for me. Like I, I can't come. And people didn't understand that. So Sarah, just so our listeners can understand how severe this really was for you. Back in 2015, when you were still working, your wrists hurt so bad that you couldn't even hold a pen or write or type or even text on your phone, correct? Correct. And you still, despite all that, continued to work and push through it, right? Yeah. I just rearranged my schedule. If I didn't feel okay that morning, I would send a quick email to my boss and say, hey, I'm not having a good day. Like, I'll try again tomorrow kind of thing. And then later on in 2015, your symptoms started to expand and even worsen more than you've described, it sounds like. So can you tell us a little bit more about the additional symptoms you received at the end of 2015 and also in 2016? Yeah, so at that point, everything snowballed in terms of my joints. I started to get actual swelling that you could see over my joints. And in October of 2015, I went to see a gastroenterologist trying to figure out if we thought maybe there might be, well, at, at this point, I had some ideas on my own being a dietitian, and I had a lot of skills and tools to, once I realized the doctors weren't getting anywhere, I thought, hey, you know what, I can, I can figure something out, I can make a positive change. So I had started doing some research that uh, was a bit beyond what my family doctor as a general practitioner was kind of aware of, so she sent me to a gastroenterologist, and it was during that appointment 
she just did a general checkup and she said after she listened to my heart well if I were you the first thing I'd be worried about is this heart murmur and I looked at her like are you kidding me I have a heart murmur I was I was actually misdiagnosed after having a uh, a viral infection when I was 20 with rheumatic fever so I had a lot of follow-up with doctors after that until they realized that I was misdiagnosed because rheumatic fever affects your heart. So I had a lot of doctors listening to my heart and checking it over and I did not have a heart murmur when I was 20. So when she said that, I thought you, you had to have heard wrong. There's no way. And at that point I had been experiencing chest pain, but I had been ignoring it because I thought I must just be stressed out because I don't know what's wrong with me. So I ignored the chest pain thinking it was, basically just stress. So that was one of the first things I realized was changing is that I was experiencing chest pain. Uh, It became difficult to breathe. I had pain in my ribs. I started developing neurological pain. It was like burning, stabbing, searing sensations in my body. I was getting a lot of swelling in my neck and stiffness. Uh, And I mean, a lot of these things still happen today. They're not every single day, 24 hours a day like they were, but they're still enough that it stops me from leading a normal life. So when people would ask like about my symptoms, because I get these questions through people on social media a lot, what were your symptoms? The one thing I can say I didn't experience was urological ones. I know some people have had lots of bladder issues and stuff like that, but pretty much the only thing that I wasn't affected by. And when I talk about my symptoms, I'm always kind of going back to the Horowitz questionnaire because that was how I started organizing my own symptom journals to bring them to my doctor. Um, so I was reading everything on that questionnaire except for the urological symptoms. So Sarah, so now here you are, you've almost outlined two years from the beginning of your symptoms. And now at this point, you're pretty much out of work, you're daily pain, and you've even experienced paralysis you mentioned earlier, right? Yes. And so much so where you were starting to use a wheelchair, is that correct? Yeah, when we were having to travel to my first line specialist, it would require a layover in an airport. We live, we live in a pretty rural location, so we have to drive four hours to the airport and catch one plane to Toronto, and then from Toronto we could connect where we were going. And that was all way too much for me. It just wasn't possible. So I was using a wheelchair through all the airports, and then for the first six months or so, Seeing my line specialist in the States, I would, like, we would just go to museums and stuff like that to try and occupy our time outside of the appointment. And we would use, like, the wheelchairs that the museums provided in order for me to get through that experience. Sarah, at any point throughout this two-year window of being sick before your diagnosis, did any doctor or family member or you think Lyme disease? A lot of people, not a lot of people, but I would say probably four or five different people. Because at this point, I live in a small town. People hear things, they know you're not at work. So, you know, you see someone at the store out and about and they say like, hey, like, what's going on? I heard such and such. So you you tell them a little bit. And I did have a few people say, well, did you get checked for Lyme disease? And my answer was always, yeah, but it was negative because I didn't know that the testing often gives out a false positive or a false negative. So when people asked me, I still, it still didn't even register to me. I was just like, yep, we checked, it's negative. Like, you know, we're still looking for an answer. So 
there is definitely people that were not medical professionals in the community who listened to what was going on with me and thought about Lyme disease, but I still didn't really know any better at that point. Did any of your doctors that ran the Lyme test tell you that it's not a perfect test and that there are a lot of false negatives? No, I don't recall any doctors making any comment whatsoever. At one point, one doctor, because I mean, we had done the ELISA test, it was negative. And then, I don't know, maybe six or eight months later, a different doctor that was covering for my family doctor decided to order a whole bunch of other tests. And they were all repeats, but she did do the test for Lyme disease, the ELISA test. And at the point that this happened, I had already seen my Lyme specialist once. I knew about the inaccuracy of these tests. I knew a lot more than I did at the beginning. And so I, I had mentioned it to her and I said, hey, like, you know, from what we understand, this test isn't very accurate. Like, could we not do a blot test? And she, she said, you know what, like, I'll actually write it on the requisition that we send to public health. So she wrote underneath Eliza test, she wrote plus Western blot. She said, but I don't know if you'll do it. And when it came back to get it, like, cause it has to be sent for approval and then they, then they do it. They wouldn't do a blood test. It, you have to have a positive ELISA before they will confirm it with a blood test. So Sarah, before we get into your diagnosis, based on all of the symptoms you described, I'm sure your various doctors and both yourself and your family were looking at ways to alleviate your symptoms while trying to figure out the root cause. If you had to think back to one health hack you did before your diagnosis to help your symptoms, what would it be? I think the best thing I did for myself that didn't come from any of the doctors was I had mentioned earlier, you know, about a year in once the doctors couldn't, couldn't pinpoint it, they couldn't diagnose anything. And I knew I was getting worse. That's when I said, okay, you know what? Like I have a, a big education behind me. Like I should be able to figure something out. So that's when I started kind of taking the symptoms that I was experiencing at that point in time and looking at how there might be something related to nutrition. The first thing I did was something we call like an elimination and challenge diet. And what I was looking for is, am I eating something that's contributing to this? So I, <laughs> I decided I was going to do this elimination challenge diet. I did a ton of research. I wrote a literature review like I was back in university and wrote notes in the columns on how certain things applied to me. And I'm talking like back from like 10 years of things that have happened or medications that I've taken and, and, and that sort of thing. Brought it to my doctor, highlighted in different colors. And I said, hey, what do you think about all of this? Um, so that's kind of when I took it into my own hands to do something. And as a result of all of those things, some of the changes I started making then where I started making kombucha and drinking that every day. I started taking high doses of good quality probiotics every day. I did that food elimination and challenge to find out if there were certain foods that were causing kind of a flare with the inflammation. And I removed those from what I was eating. All of this with my doctors, not overseeing it because I mean, I'm, I am a dietitian. I knew what I was doing, but I, I didn't do anything without talking to my doctor about it. And I think that was that's also something that I would really encourage people to do is to be open with your doctor because you want them to help you. Like you have to, you have to have an open communication line. So I was always very forthcoming with all of these things I was going to do. 
and starting things like fish oil supplements and a couple other things to help potentially reduce the inflammation. So a combination of all of that, I didn't notice any actual change overall, but I know for certain that it made a world of a difference. So all of those things, the kombucha, the probiotics, those few supplements, I had been taking those for a year before I started actual treatment with antibiotics for Lyme. And I did, like you mentioned, a year and a half with IV and oral antibiotics. At that point, like the average person is going to have like GI disturbances. You're going to have antibiotic induced diarrhea. Like C. diff is common, uh, overgrowth of candida in your gut, all of those things. And I didn't experience any of them. So what I had done in that year leading up to so much antibiotics, I kind of prepared my body without even realizing I was doing it at the time. So Sarah, many of our guests are a little nervous about picking what type of kombucha to drink because it is a fermented drink. It could be very high in alcohol content and alcohol is not good for Lyme patients. What brand or was it a homemade version of kombucha did you drink to help your health during that point? Yeah, I actually, I made it. I mean, that, that stuff is pretty expensive and I knew someone who had already been making it for about a year. So I had asked her. So she gave me uh, like the Scooby, like the little bacteria thing. She gave me one of those, an extra jar she had. And so I basically always made it unless I was traveling, I would pick up something at the grocery store. What eventually brought you to your Lyme literate doctor? So what kind of brought us to the point of seeking out a a Lyme literate doctor? uh, At this point, we're looking at January 2016. Uh, Things are really horrible. Uh, My husband decides, okay, you know, enough is enough. With some of the symptoms I was having, because I was having lots of um, swelling in my glands and stuff like that too. Doctors locally were kind of tossing around like lymphoma and that kind of thing. So he's like, I'm not waiting for this answer. Like, we're going to go deal with this. Let's go to the Mayo Clinic. So we went to the Mayo Clinic, spent four days there, and got oh, so many tests done. Um, you know, like around here, it would have taken us months to get all those done. So he was just tired of waiting, tired of seeing me suffer. So we went and did that. Uh, we still didn't get an answer, which was really defeating. Like, in our perspective, you know, like we don't the Mayo Clinic, we don't have it in Canada. We had to go to the States for it. Um, we always kind of thought it was like the holy grail of doctors. And if no one can figure it out, like they can. So we went with really high hopes. And it was like the saddest eight-hour drive home I'd ever had. Like I was so defeated thinking, if they don't know what it is, like how are we ever going to figure this out? So we drove home. And then that night when we were laying in bed, at this point, my husband's like Google searching and like everything he can to try and figure this out too. And Lyme disease came up again. And so he read someone else's blog that she had had been diagnosed and she was talking about where she might've gotten bit by a tick. And she mentioned a sheep farm that's like in our area, it's like 10 minutes from my house where they were visiting as they were driving through our area. And she thinks that's where she got bit. So we started looking at it a little bit more. And then he read about how the test, like the ELISA test, isn't very accurate. And the next thing we came upon all that night while we were lying in bed was the documentary Under Our Skin. So we thought, okay, like we can rent this on iTunes. Let's do that. 
we did. And I sat there in tears because I related so much to people that they were interviewing, but to kind of paint a picture, like the one of the three people that they were following, I think her name was Mandy, the girl with the blonde hair. It was like watching myself when I was watching her. Like it was so similar. And at that point we thought, this has to be it. Like what what else could this be? So I think the same night we just we sat in bed and researched forever. We learned about hygienics and um I printed out the information. I brought it to my family doctor and I said, Hey, like I know we're pulling at straws, but do you think we could send a sample off to this lab? I don't know what else to do. And she said like the same thing, like, you know, I can't think of any other tests to run on you at this point either. I don't know what other specialist to send you to. So sure. So we did um, the blood work. I had it drawn up locally and mailed out to California. And at that point I thought, okay, like I'm going to be proactive. This seems like the only plausible explanation. So I used CanLime and ILADS and got a list of their Lyme literate doctors. And I spent a few days going through those lists and I had like some of my own criteria that I wanted to get met with the doctor that I saw. So I crossed off anyone that didn't meet that criteria. And then I made phone calls and talked to the people in the offices and uh, I ended up deciding on my doctor and called them back and said, I'm still waiting for my test results, but I'd like to go ahead and book an appointment. And they had a cancellation. So they were able to fit me in, in the middle of March. And the way it worked out with timing was that my family doctor got the results from hygienics on March 6th, called me with the news. And then on March 16th, I saw my Lyme doctor for the first time. Sarah, you mentioned that you went to ILADS and CAM Lyme while you were waiting for the results to come back to be proactive and find a Lyme leader doctor that you felt met the guidelines you were looking for. Here in the States, we're not too familiar with CAM Lyme. Can you describe what that is for our Canadian listeners? Yeah, so it's CAN, C-A-N, and then Lyme. So there's the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. There's not, like, they don't act in the same way that ILADS does in terms of um, resources for physicians and that sort of thing, but they are an advocacy group. And I've reached out to them a couple of times for various things, and they've been amazing. They've been so helpful. So it's one thing I would suggest if, if you are in Canada and you're kind of looking around you know, whether it's for a doctor or for other resources, like definitely check them out because they're, they're, def- they're, they're there to help and they're really kind, compassionate people. You did your hygienics testing, obviously, and it came back and your local, doc- your local family doctor read the results and then you followed up with your Lyme litter doctor. Aside from Lyme Borrelia being positive, did anything else pop on those tests? Yeah, so from my hygienics results, Western blot was positive and the Bartonella test was positive. And then locally, like I had mentioned before, the ELISA test for Lyme was negative, but we have checked for Bartonella locally and that's been positive here as well. Otherwise, I was diagnosed with Babesia by the Lyme literate doctor based on my clinical workup. So now that you've finally found this Lyme literate doctor that met your guidelines and you know what you have based on the various testings and clinical diagnosis done by your LLMD, what was your treatment protocol? The first thing we had to do, like he said, the way that my appointment worked is the doctor himself only usually sees his IV patients. So when I came in for my initial assessment, he has a bunch of people working under him. So I saw one of those people first. She did 
a long history physical assessment and then she actually left the room and went to go get him and pull him in and he sat down in front of me and he did a few of his own things for a physical assessment and then he looked at me and he said you're really sick and I mean my personality is to laugh <laughs> Um, I guess I'm a more positive person, and when I don't know what to do, I smile. So I smiled and laughed, and he said, no, like, when most people come to me finally, they're already sick, but, like, you're sicker than most people when they come to my office. And I was like, oh, like, it's that bad? I mean, I knew it was that bad, but hearing it from him, someone who had been practicing and seeing Lyme disease patients for, like, 10 years, that's kind of when I really realized, like, I think he validated everything I was feeling and it made me realize okay I'm not exaggerating any of this in my own head like this truly is that bad so before he could start treating me he needed to help stabilize my body first um, the biggest problem at that point was the neurological pain uh, I wasn't sleeping it was it was not something I would wish on like my worst enemy to experience pain like that um, so he put me on a few meds to help deal with that and th those kind of meds you need to slowly work up on them if you start taking like a full dose at once like most people feel really horrible and it messes with your head and so it was a uh, I think it was like six weeks that it took to finally get to a full dose on those and I went back to see him I needed to be cleared for surgery because we were going to go with the IV antibiotic route so I had to get cleared for surgery in the meantime which had to be done by my local doctor so I had a few appointments and stuff I had to get through first. So in March of 2016, I saw him between March and June. I stabilized a little bit and kind of worked through his checklist to make sure I was stable enough for the surgery. And then in June of 2016, I went back to the States and he referred me to a hospital locally there and I had a central line placed. Sarah, you indicated that after you received your diagnosis, you felt validated. Were you doubting yourself prior to getting that diagnosis? I mean, I wasn't doubting myself. I, I, it was very clear something was wrong. Like we both, my husband, when I say we both, we, we knew that. I, I think just knowing, because like, like I said, I, I had a lot of requirements in choosing a doctor and I wanted someone who had a lot of experience with this disease. So I think hearing it from him and really truly confirming it, it was like a weight got lifted off my shoulders. Like I wasn't searching anymore. Like we had the answer. I had the doctor. I could finally rest in putting some faith in someone else to make a plan to carry me forward. So it was a bit of validation in the fact that I had been experiencing these things and something was wrong, but it was also relief in having someone that could help me and knew how to help me. Did the diagnosis help you socially? Were you able to now describe to your family and friends what was wrong with you? Yeah, so like the first thing we did um, was with our immediate family and friends, we told them all about that documentary under our skin. We're like, you know, this is the best way I can explain it. Like this character, not character, but this girl that they've been following, this is basically what my life's been like. So it kind of gave them a really good way to learn a bit about it and to get like a day-to-day -day glimpse of what things were kind of like for me. And at that point, like with my going back to when I wasn't sick and I had a private consulting business, I had developed a website for my private practice and 
it was my husband that said to me the one day, you know, maybe you should use your blog and like tell everyone what's happened kind of thing. You know, something we realized while we were trying to figure out what was wrong with me once we got to like the Lyme disease thing and we realized not just like the lack of awareness, like I knew nothing about it and I live in an area where there are ticks everywhere. So we just, I said, I said to him and I said to a few other people, this shouldn't have happened and it doesn't have to happen to people. So I think that that's kind of where I started with my blog is I wanted people locally to know that it was a possibility and that they could have done something to kind of prevent it in a sense. It was kind of my way of explaining my absence in the community because it is a small town without having to, you know, tell everyone I came across in the grocery store or whatever. It was kind of my way of explaining why I'd been sick, what was wrong, why it wasn't working anymore. And uh, my way of saying, hey, like, don't let this happen to you. So, Sarah, you said that this is something that shouldn't have happened or doesn't have to happen. Is that because tick diseases are diseases of exposure and with adequate information and knowledge that you can avoid this disease? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anything in life is like avoidable with certainty, but I think the more information we have on anything, the more prepared we can be. And if I would have known all of what I know now when it happened, I I wouldn't have left the clinic with a tube of ointment and thought, okay, no big deal. Like I would have advocated for myself. I would have been more aware. You know, I would have taken precautions when I did go and do things outside at least to kind of protect myself a bit better. So that was my biggest thing is I just didn't want someone else to um, knowingly get get bit by, by a tick and not do something about it, not be aware of it. So Sarah, your blog is soulnutritionconsulting.com, correct? S-O-U-L, nutritionconsulting.com? Yeah. yeah. And on there, you have some free resources as well, such as your top tool to make eating healthy easy and recipes to inspire you. Yeah, yeah. It's, I tried so hard to do as much as I can over these last few years, but I mean, anyone that deals with any kind of chronic illness knows it takes a lot of your time as well. And I, ha- I have to say, and I wish it, w- it wasn't the case, but through 2019, mostly like from this year and part of last year, this illness has really been hard on me emotionally and mentally too. So I took a big hiatus from kind of social media, blogging, like everything all together because I just, I needed to take a step back, I guess, and take a breather from it. So, I mean, I'm really passionate about helping people Um, when it comes to Lyme disease and nutrition, because I know that there's a big gap out there. So if you go there, like, I I, I hope you don't feel disappointed that there isn't tons of content, because it is something I want to bring to people. So I think, yeah, in in telling people about my website, I just don't want people to go there and think, oh, there's nothing here, because I do want to help, and I I will, but it's, it's a balance between trying to manage the illness myself and giving back at the same time. Sarah, no one could be disappointed with your website. It's actually a beautiful <laughs> website. And, and, and as you know, the, our goal here at Tech Bootcamp is to bring all of the different pieces together so that we have a mosaic of tools available to folks. And your, your piece is a really well done piece. And the contributions you've already made are unbelievably beautiful. So thank you for, for doing that. And please don't think this is not adequate in any way. It's a wonderful contribution to the overall mosaic of tools that folks will have available to them.
Thank you. I really appreciate that. So Sam, I'd like to back up to your Lyme treatment. So you mentioned that now here you are in about 2016-ish, June of 2016 through December of 2017. So for about a year and a half, you were on IV antibiotics combined with oral antibiotics. Do you recall what type of antibiotics specifically you were on? <laughs> I've actually had that question a lot, and I'm, I laugh because the answer is what one wasn't I on? <laughs> so the way my doctor did his protocols, it was pulsed, and it, it kind of varied in terms of time frame as his treatment went on. At the beginning, I had three weeks on antibiotics, one week off entirely, but even during those three weeks on, Sometimes the oral antibiotics were Monday through Friday. Sometimes they were seven days a week. And then the IV ones were three days a week. So everything was highly varied. Like there was, as a patient, you would obviously not understand his brilliance and what he's doing. So like I couldn't even see a pattern really in what he prescribed and how. But overall, I can say what his goal is was to start knocking down the co-infections first before he actually started treating Borrelia. So when it came to the antibiotics, he was working on mostly like, I, can't, I think it was Babesia kind of came first and then Bartonella. Um, and I mean, some meds are kind of working at everything at once. So it was kind of co-infections first, then the Lyme bacteria. Throughout this time, you had different things put in you, like a central line, a portacath, and you had some struggles with those lines, correct? Yes. <laughs> So the central line I had put in in June of 2016, and actually two years ago today was my very last dose of IV antibiotics. So I'm having a bit of an anniversary today, as well as talking to you guys. Congratulations. Um, thanks. <laughs> it was really exciting to be done with the uh, antibiotics. And it wasn't actually at my like Lyme doctor's recommendation to stop. I just started getting this gut feeling, this voice in the back of my head that I couldn't ignore saying, you have tolerated all of this so darn well, like in terms of like not having complications from taking these meds, like, you know, sepsis, C. diff, all of those things. I passed the flying colors in, sense of, in that sense. And something was just telling me I was really starting to push my limits and I needed to stop while I was ahead. So Two years ago today, I did my last dose of IV antibiotics. That was a Friday. And then on the Monday, one of the local surgeons was set to remove my central line. So I had been in there for, well, actually today would have, like, so two years ago today, it was 500 days. So it was, I think, 504 days total that I had the central line in my body. And, um, I mean, they're indicated for a year usually. I don't think it's too common to see people have them for a year and a half, but either way, um, when the local doctor went to remove it, it had actually adhered to the vein. And because we are a small community, we're not equipped with an OR to deal with like major traumas. So he had to close me back up, call a uh, vascular surgeon in the next city. And then two days later, on the 506th day I finally saw that surgeon and she was able to dislodge the central line and I was free of it so then I went from October of 2017 until December of 2018 without any implanted device and then in December last year 
I had a porta cast place and my porta cast had been like basically throughout the lifetime of me having it, it was pretty much always an issue. Um, when they put it in one week later, my home care nurse came to access it so we could start using it and it wasn't flushing. We weren't getting any blood return. The incision had opened up a little bit and when we'd flush it, fluid started bubbling out of the incision, like out of my body. Something was clearly wrong. So I got sent up to the hospital and I saw the oncology nurses because they're the ones that deal with portacast the most in this town. They have the most experience and they knew something wasn't right, especially when the fluids came out of my body once we pushed them in. So they called the surgeon in and she's like, oh, you know, we, we had an issue putting it in the portacast, like the actual device and the catheter had a bit of a, I don't know, I, there was something about the depth wasn't right. They had to fix something, long story short. Um, they did an x-ray. She thought she was just going to go and reconnect it and I'd be on my way. The x-ray came back in the meantime, and it wasn't that it had just kind of come unclipped on one side. The whole catheter had detached, and um, it had migrated about like two centimeters. So they actually had to put me like all the way back to sleep redo the whole thing and then after that I was good until just this last September like a month ago my portacast wouldn't flush again and we couldn't get blood return and I felt when they did try and flush it there was like pressure and because I'd already had it disconnect once I knew what it felt like when that pressure happened I knew something was wrong so I went up to the emergency room and they actually had just thought it was a clot because that would be the normal thing to happen so they tried to flush it and I like, I curled in on myself. It was so painful. I felt like the worst sensation up by my collarbone. I always thought like in movies and on TV, when you see people like swearing and labor that, oh, you must be able to control that. Like, how do you yell at people and curse and swear in public? It happens. <laughs> it hurt so bad when they flushed it. I started throwing out F-bombs and being like, oh my gosh, something is wrong. You have to stop. But you're, you are, your dad's American, so we, we fully expect you to throw f anyway. The Canadians would never do that. <laughs> well, my dad really doesn't either, actually, so I didn't get it from him. <laughs> but uh, so they, they did an x-ray, and the, the doctor came back in, and he's like, yeah, so I pulled up your, your x-ray from when it, it disconnected the first time. And so you can see the catheter, it comes up here, and then you can see it come back down. And then here's your x-ray from today, and you can see the catheter, and you don't see it anymore after this point. And he's like kind of showing it where it would be. It's basically at my collarbone. And he goes, so then there's nothing, but then you look down here and you can see it again. And that's in your heart. And I looked at him and I was like, should I cry right now? I think I want to cry. <laughs> this can't be okay. And he's like, no, it, it, it's not. We got to get it out of there. <laughs> so I think like, for like a good hour, I was just like completely stunned. Like I had a tube inside of my heart. I had to spend the night in the emergency room and I was medevaced, like air ambulance out to the city the next day to get it removed. Uh, again, being in a small town, we were not equipped for anything like that. So I got to the city. They brought me into the room to get it taken out and the doctor decided to do a femoral vein puncture, go in with a lead wire. His words are, do a lasso, basically like tie around it and pull it back out. It was supposed to take about 20 minutes and it ended up taking 45 <laughs> because it really 
it was really stuck. Um, they ended up going in both femoral veins at the same time with two different guide wires. It took the doctor plus someone helping him eventually to get it out. It was incredibly stressful. Um, surprisingly, like, I didn't feel a lot. Like you'd think if you have this like, tube in your heart, you would notice, but it really gave me a little bit of hope for my body. It almost made me feel, I, I guess hopeful is the best word because I realized how resilient my body can be and a body is. In my head, it still doesn't make sense that you can have something sit inside your heart for 24 hours or we're not really sure how long it was even in there. So it took a, quite a bit of work to get it out. He finally did get it out. He brought it over to me. He showed it to me. It was actually like five inches long, the piece of the catheter that broke off. So I had a five inch catheter tube lodged in my heart and we were actually really lucky that it was that big because if it was smaller it could have continued to migrate and at that point it would have got into the lung and that would have been like a major surgery so all things said I was lucky with that experience and then just uh, a week ago yesterday I had the rest of the portacast removed there is still the actual like device plus the remaining part of the catheter in there they were expecting it to be simple. I'd only had this thing in for nine months and the remaining part of the catheter tube had actually adhered inside of me. So that took twice as long to, to finally dig that thing out. But I was lucky that the local surgeon was able to get it out and I didn't have to go back to the city for a vascular surgeon again. You know, Sarah, every podcast we do, we discover something new about Lyme disease. And I guess one of the lessons we've now learned is if uh, Lyme disease is not strong enough to break your heart. The catheter certainly is. <laughs> Very true. So Sarah, I'd like to go back a little bit because after the IV and oral antibiotics for a year and a half, uh, you actually had the portacath put in after your antibiotics once you were at your new doctor and you were taking more of a homeopathic approach. What caused you to leave the antibiotic approach and go to the homeopathic approach? For me, choosing to um, switch from antibiotics to homeopathic natural medicine. Like I said earlier, like there was just something like in my gut, in my head yelling at me, like, stop, stop, stop. So I think that's one of the lessons I've learned through all of this is like to trust my gut, my intuition. Um, so that was kind of part of it. I mean, at, at the end of that year and a half, I was so sick. And one of the meds my doctor used for antibiotics to treat Lyme. So like I mentioned before, he does the co-infections and then Lyme. And we used ticocycline and it was horrible. Like I was constantly puking. It was like, it was the worst. And I think that also played into me deciding to jump ship. Like I just didn't think I could handle feeling like that anymore. I mean, the antibiotics, I, I believe I made the right choice at the time. I think they saved my life from where I was when I saw him the first time my last visit with him. I mean, I didn't recover. I didn't gain everything back, but I do believe he saved my life. And all of that said, I just knew I couldn't keep doing antibiotics anymore. Uh, it's not really in my nature to want to take medication either. So I think switching to a natural treatment plan was kind of inevitable for me anyways. And I kind of work off of one, I need evidence and I need to research, but at the same time, like if I have something that's kind of pointing me in a direction and I, things keep happening that are like signs, I try and listen to them or at least acknowledge them. And that's kind of where I was at at this point. It was 
a combination of a couple people. One was a girl from the clinic I went to in the States. She had been to a clinic in Switzerland and it ended up being what saved her and fixed, not fixed, but, you know, like healed her and got her over it. And then, as I mentioned, like my husband's family is from Switzerland and there's quite a bit of Swiss people in the town we live in. One of the guys is from the community where the clinic I ended up going to is. And he was kind of heartbroken hearing my story, knowing how much we'd been through. And he just was like, oh, like just send her to Switzerland. Like they can fix her, like go to this clinic. So it's kind of two people that mentioned this clinic that were completely unrelated. So that's when I started looking into making that switch and going in that direction. I don't think that if someone didn't keep, if I didn't get the name of this clinic a few times in a row from different people, I don't know that I would have made that jump as quick as I did. So after that, I looked into it a little bit more. I found out it's quite close to my husband's family. So, I mean, it was scary as heck. And I definitely felt like I was taking a big leap of faith going into homeopathic and natural medicine because it's really not something I understood much about. It was a big change and it was really scary, but I also just felt like my gut was telling me to go for it. So Sarah, you've made a number of different pivots during the course of your treatment journey. Do you believe you would have had the confidence to make all of these different changes and take this recent leap of faith if you didn't have a strong support system? Absolutely not. I honestly think about this a lot and especially lately, I've been trying to be more reflective and trying so hard to get my mental and emotional health back to what it was from before I was sick. I mean, my family has been absolutely amazing. Like my parents, basically around the same time I got sick, they started semi-retiring and going down to Arizona for the winters. My mom's been back every winter. My mom's taken over our books for the business. She's been so helpful. She. I think there was a couple of years where she came back twice in the middle of winter, came home early in order to just help us with the business, uh, help us keep our house clean, do our groceries, like basically all the stuff most people do for themselves. She, she was doing for us. My family has been huge in terms of helping us financially. I'm really lucky to have them and they live so close. My grandma's, my grandparents are young. So when I say my grandma comes and cleans our house, I I feel like I sound like the meanest granddaughter ever because <laughs> usually by the time you're in your thirties, you're the one helping your grandparents, but it's totally the reverse. They're here helping with anything from broken clotheslines to, you know, stuff around the house that, you know, my husband's out working in order to make money for us to keep dealing with all of this. So they're here helping with that kind of stuff. My grand comes and cleans up, helps with that. So they've been a huge part in how I've been able to keep making these changes, how we're able to travel, they swoop in and support us. And aside from them, my husband has been, I feel like, a driving force in all of the decisions we've made. He's always let me make them. He's always supported them. He's always let me think out loud and help me come to decision. But it's it's because of him and his, like, I won't settle for letting you suffer attitude that I haven't fallen into a pattern where I let myself suffer for too long. He absolutely refuses to give up on me, even on the days where all I do is feel sorry for myself and want to cry. Like he's, he's been the driving force in 
making all of these pivots and changes possible from like a, an emotional standpoint, a financial standpoint from all of it. Sarah, regarding the financial impact here in the States, most Lyme treatment isn't covered. And many of our guests, almost all of them have paid a large amount of money out of pocket. How is it in Canada regarding the coverage of this treatment with your health insurance? I would say it's probably about the same. I mean, I just, obviously if you have um, a doctor's appointment here, like we, our doctor's appointments are covered. A lot of our lab work is covered. So in terms of all of the visits I've had with my family doctor and specialists and that kind of thing, those are covered like they are for any other person in Canada um, or in Ontario. That kind of stuff isn't any different. But all of my travel to the doctor I had in the States, I think in total we made 15 trips to Washington to see him. All of the travel we've had to pay for. The IV antibiotics I purchased in the States, so those were all out of pocket. I did have a drug plan that I submitted them to, and I think they like, it covered somewhere around like $7,000 out of like the 70000 or so. So it may be about 10%. And then again, same here as in the States, if you have a drug plan, when you are prescribed medications, if your drug plan covers that medication, it's covered. So, I mean, I've had a lot of the oral antibiotics covered through with my drug plan throughout this time. Uh, and then everything we've done with the clinic in Switzerland, all of that's been out of pocket as well. So Sarah, in total, if you had to think about how much you spent out of pocket for everything, travel, medicine, how much would you say you spent? I mean, if we're going all the way back to 2014 and including things like my husband bought me like this really awesome, like hospital style bed so that I had more independence getting in and out of bed. Um, things for your just regular ADL, like your daily activities for living, like raised toilet seats, like all of those things we've purchased from the beginning until now with the supplements, with travel, accommodations, everything. I would say we're probably close to, if not over 300,000. Do you feel that the homeopathic route since leaving the antibiotics has been helpful in furthering your recovery? I, I think this question is really hard for me to um, kind of articulate because when I was sick, I started straight with the antibiotics. And I mean, we all know that the antibiotics, they kill the bad stuff, but they also kill the good stuff. How much damage was from the infection? How much damage was from the antibiotics? I mean, would I have been able to heal my gut and rebuild my immune system while taking antibiotics? No. So, I mean, I think that that's where the homeopathic stuff has come into, into play and, and it's been helpful. I think it's playing a huge role in recovering from the damage from the antibiotics as well. But I also don't feel like I can answer it perfectly because, as you had mentioned before, like I've had all these setbacks. I've had kind of three big setbacks throughout my time on homeopathic meds as well. The first was at the clinic, we, we would do IVs daily. And when I came home, the plan was to continue them weekly. And at that point, we were just trying to use like a peripheral vein, like a regular IV that you get if you're in the emergency room, that kind of idea. I had great veins up until fall of 2018, and then they were suddenly collapsing all the time. So it got to a point where we couldn't get a vein in order to get the meds in. They kind of got undertreated by not being able to take those meds for a good three months, and then finally got my portacast put in, but then we had those complications, and it 
slowed me down in terms of restarting the meds. So I think that altogether it was like a four month break that we couldn't get those meds in. So that set me back a bit. And then when I would run out of those IV sets, the clinic would mail me new ones. And then it was early this, this spring in like March or April of 2019, we had arranged to get them mailed out and um, the clinic informed me that they're no longer able to ship to Canada because they had issues with customs and they couldn't explain what those issues were. So we thought, okay, you know what, we're going to take a chance. We got them to get the meds ready anyways. And like I mentioned, my husband's family lives close to the clinic. His cousin lives like 10 minutes away. So she went and picked up my meds and mailed them to me. And then it, I don't, I don't know why it got held at customs. There was a note that they had reviewed the contents of the parcel, but everything that had been shipped in that shipment has been shipped before. So it wasn't like anything was unacceptable to be shipped into Canada. That wasn't the problem, but it got delayed in customs for eight whole weeks. So that was another two months that I went without medication again. So that set me back as well. Uh, and then my most recent setback has been losing my portacast and having the ability to access intravenous meds easily. So I feel like if I could have continued this homeopathic plan without all of these interruptions, I think I could be a lot further than I am today. So Sarah, we've noticed in your pre-interview questionnaire that you said you were taking PRP injections and they've helped significantly with the big lumps and inflammation around your joints. Can you explain to our listeners what PRP injections are? Sure. So this is actually something really new to me as well. There is a naturopath in the city. So I saw him for the first time last month in September, and he had thought that these platelet, it's called PRP is platelet rich plasma. Uh, He thought they would be really helpful for my joints. And I recently also had an x-ray done of my joints and these lumps, we can now see clearly with, um, I think I just said x-ray, I meant to say ultrasound. Uh, we could see clearly in the ultrasound that the inflammation is actually not within the joint, or at least with the lumps in my wrist and on my ankles, it's actually surrounding the tendons. And the naturopath did his own examination as well, more physical, like poking and prodding in certain areas. And he confirmed a lot of like the, I guess you could call them pain points I experience are at tendon attachments. So we've recently kind of confirmed that this illness has affected my soft tissues a lot as well. So what happens when he does the PRP injections, they take about four or five vials of blood, like from yourself, and then it's centrifuge, so it's spun, and then they collect platelets from your own blood. And he does mix it with some uh, homeopathic things as well, which I actually didn't even ask what they were, because I'm kind of at the point where I'm willing to try a lot of things that maybe I wouldn't have tried in the past. And he injects it into those areas that are kind of pain points. So when I was there, I did one injection for my knee, one for my wrist, one for my shoulder. I didn't want to like go overboard on them until I knew they actually helped. It kind of was, it was a trial for me this first time. Uh, It's something that according to the doctor, you need to do it frequently to start. And then uh, you should be able to do kind of a maintenance dose. And what it does is he almost kind of described it as if you have a sprained ankle, we're re-spraining it in order to set it to heal. So it's, it's, it is causing a bit of injury in a sense, but injecting the platelets is also kind of like a call to action in your body to send all of your natural healing defenses and the properties in your body that heal things when you have an injury. 
to that area so it can actually regenerate the tissue and repair damage. So he does this for people who have like sports injuries and stuff too. So I've only had it done once and I was getting like the, the lump in my wrist, especially like just chronically for the last few months. He did these injections and it hurts like heck for a few days afterwards, which is expected. And then I had like two weeks where my wrist didn't swell up and like these lumps stayed away for a while. So at this point, we're just kind of trying to work out a schedule where I can get back up to his office often enough to keep getting them. And hopefully I'll be able to go longer in between each injection and I might start seeing some long-term improvement from them. So Sarah, would you recommend CBD oil to others who are suffering with the symptoms of Lyme disease? The CBD oil is something, well, the oil itself is something new for me. I originally found that there is, and I don't know how people access it in the States. I can only speak for here in Canada, but there are some websites that sell this kind of stuff and you don't need a doctor's prescription. So I had found gummies that were just CBD. There's no THC in them. And I don't find that they help when I'm having that inflammation and stuff in my joints, like I was describing earlier. But when I have neurological pain flares, I find the CBD takes like the sting of them out. There's uh, a CBD gummy that was really helpful for uh, the neurological pain, kind of I use it acutely, like when I need it. And then I had recently been trying to learn a little bit about CBD oils for systemic chronic inflammation in the body. And there is, I found out about this doctor on Facebook. He's Canadian doctor, retired. He's been pretty active in the Lyme community as well. And he's kind of taken a personal interest in research role in CBD and how it relates to killing spirochetes. So I had done a little bit of reading and decided I was going to try 20 milligrams of CBD oil twice a day and see if my, you know, your lab work, which you might after being a Lyme patient, <laughs> um, your ESR and your CRP, those are the measures of inflammation in the body. Mine have always been high and they fluctuate, but um, my CRP is something that um, we have a lot of previous data on because we've checked it throughout the years off and on. And so I recently saw my doctor and told her I'd like to do this. CBD oil I'm buying has no THC in it. And I wanted to know what my CRP was now. And I'd like to commit to doing this 20 milligrams twice a day of the oil for like two months and kind of monitor my CRP levels as we go and see if it's actually making a difference. So I can't really speak to if it's working yet because I only just started this week, but I'm taking a THC-free CBD oil at 20 milligrams twice a day under the tongue to hopefully help with inflammation. Dr. Bill Rolls, who we've had on our podcast in the past, has done a lot of research in regard to CBD oil. And actually this Wednesday, he has a webinar titled Myth Busting CBD, The Real Truth About CBD Benefits, Side Effects, Dosing, Interactions, and More. So we'd encourage you and all of our listeners to check out Dr. Rolls and all of the resources he has regarding CBD oil to really learn about how it can help us with our Lyme symptoms and pain and neurological issues, et cetera. That's awesome. I didn't know that. I've read some of his stuff on his website. That's actually part of where I was learning from before I started it. So I'm definitely going to have to check it out. So Sarah, can you share with us how you're doing now? How I'm doing now is it's still really up and down. I have... I, I do have good days now, which is something I didn't have a couple of years ago. I might get one good day in a row. I might get like six. Uh, it's 
still something I can't really put a pattern to. I do notice that my sleep is something I need to control. And if I'm in too much pain to sleep properly and get a a restful sleep, it kind of perpetuates the cycle starting again. In terms of the physical stuff, I still experience the horrible things I had in 2016, but it's it's not every day anymore. I think one thing that I've learned through all of this is that I already knew it was going to be a long road. I did not know how long that road was going to be and how bumpy and full of potholes it is. It seems like there's nothing that's going to surprise me because I feel like anything could happen. So in terms of now, I'm taking advantage of the good days when I can. I'm still learning how to try and do some normal activities again without overdoing it. I find it's really hard to relearn where your limits are. And I find that my limits can change from one day to the next as well. So what I might have been okay with yesterday might be too much today. So I'm learning to listen to my body still. In terms of my mental, emotional health, it's been about two years now that I've been going to the local mental health program. And I had been going every two weeks for the first year or so. And then like maybe like the last nine months, things have been harder mentally. And I think that's the biggest shift I've noticed is my mental health is actually worse now than it was when I was at my sickest. And I think part of that's because when I was so sick, like back in 2016, I I remember laying awake in bed thinking like, I am not going to see 2017. Like I'm not going to live through this year. That's how bad it was. So I think when you're that sick and you're so consumed with trying to find out what's wrong with you and then you're getting through treatment, you're in like a survival mode and like your your thought is only going as far as how do I get through today? And I still have those days when I have the really bad days. It's just what can I do today to make it more manageable and deal with it? But now, so, and I mean, any any chronic illness, the longer you deal with it, the harder it is on your emotions and your mental health. So. I think that's kind of where I'm at now is I'm really trying to trying to not feel a symptom one day to the next. I, that, that's my biggest thing. If I have a good day and then the next day is really bad, immediately in my head, I'm getting all these like, what if that I'm starting to panic and worry? Like, am I getting worse again? Is something not working? Like, did the bacteria grow and I'm going to get like, I'm going to go back to 2016? Like all of those things and fears really play up now when I'm not feeling well. So Right now, that's one of the biggest things I'm trying to work on is even through the bad days, learning how to manage emotionally and mentally. So Sarah, one of the things we've learned, or one of the many things we've learned through the many podcasts we've been blessed to do is that a tick disease journey can be positively transformational. Can you share with our listeners how you've been transformed in a positive way since you started your tick disease journey? For sure. And I I think the biggest thing I can say is, is much as we've talked about all the bad stuff and all the hard stuff, I am still glad this happened. I I don't believe in regrets or wishing things were different. And I think that's part of it. But there have been so many positives that have come out of this. It's brought me closer to my friends, my family, my husband. It's been especially, I don't want to say great, that my husband and I have had to deal with this journey because it, it had it's been so trying and so difficult along the way. And I think, honestly, harder for him. It's harder to watch someone you love suffering and not really be able to help them. But 
it's brought us so much closer and I wouldn't trade anything for that. It's brought me a lot of time to reflect on where I was in life before I got sick and where I want to be now. I was so goal-oriented, which there's nothing wrong with, but I was just constantly set a goal, achieve it, and then set a bigger goal and try and achieve that. So I felt like I was kind of like on autopilot for like just achieving things for the sake of achieving them before I got sick. And now I've had the opportunity to say, okay, like what really matters to me and what do I want my life to look like one day when, you know, I have the option to kind of be a little bit more choosy and not have to deal with my health so much on a day-to-day basis, but it's really given me an opportunity to reflect on what I want in life and be thankful for what I already have. And it's also brought a lot of really beautiful people into my life too that I, I don't know. Like I've, I've made some really great connections with people who are really just strangers that we've found each other through social media. And I think that's really cool too. So it's, it's connecting with people you wouldn't have found otherwise as well. And Sarah, can you share with us your, your vision for your social media? We've found that every one of our guests has developed a desire through their journey to help other people avoid the challenges that they've had to face, either in the first place by getting bitten by a tick and getting Lyme disease, or some of the bumps in the road that they've had to face during their journey. Can you share with us what inspired your social media and how you're reaching out and trying to help other people through their challenging journeys? So for me, my social media started with basically I wanted I, I wanted to make an impact locally. I just didn't want anyone else to go through what I did. So I thought if they knew about they knew about Lyme disease, how it happens, how you treat it, if you can get it or like at the beginning, then I could save people in my town. But then like I I had this, this I've told the story actually yesterday. Um, I wrote I wrote an article. In, it was published in our local newspaper and in the cities and surrounding areas. And it was a, a letter to the prime minister. And a woman in a different city had read it. And the way I described my symptoms and what had been happening, it was like the light bulb moment for her. And she realized this is what's wrong with my son. So because I had this social media account, well, my Facebook and Instagram and my website, she reached out to me through all three of them. She even found my phone number, which I don't, I don't know how she did, but she did. And uh, she sent me emails, called me, and was like, I think this is what's wrong with my son. What do I do? And so I told her what I did, how we you know, found a doctor that would sign the requisition to send my blood work to hygienics, and then we got the results back, and I explained using can Lyme and stuff, eyelids in order to find a Lyme doctor and get treated. And that was kind of like the end of it. I didn't hear from her again. And then a year later, I got a random email. The name seems familiar. And then I, I opened it and it was her. And she said, I just want to thank you. If you didn't write that letter to the prime minister and it didn't get published in our local newspaper, I don't know if I ever would have found out what was wrong with my son and you saved his life. And I thought, oh my gosh, like if I've done nothing for anyone, like, I couldn't ask for more than that. Like that was, that was huge for me, but I'm, I'd also like to keep doing that. I'd like to keep helping more people. So like what I vision have in like my vision for my social media is I want to keep sharing my story because I do think there is, there's a lot of power in storytelling, which you guys know, but I also 
want to use the tools I had as an dietitian to help me start this journey. I want to share those with others. So my big goal, my long-term goal is to create like an online program that anyone can access in order to help them better learn everything about Lyme disease and nutrition and apply it into their life in a way that works for them. Because, I mean, I could get better and start taking clients, but I mean, you can only see so many people in a day. Whereas if I can create something that I can make available online, I feel like I could help a lot of people because I know that Lyme disease and nutrition, it's not something, it's not something that there's a lot of information on yet. It's still a really new and developing area, as is everything with Lyme disease really still. Sarah, thank you for sharing that beautiful story with us. That's really very, very powerful. And I'm going to ask you one last question and one last piece of advice from you for our listeners. If tomorrow morning you woke up and you found a tick biting you on the leg, what would you do? If I woke up tomorrow morning and I had a tick bite, and I've, I've had people ask me this too, where they wake up and realize I had one. My cousin's been one of those people recently. And they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I have this tick bite. And they, even like whether or not there is a big red rash around it, I tell them, go up to like the emergency room or see their doctor. and Do not leave without dealing with it. Like, if, if I could do this all over again, I just wouldn't have left the clinic without antibiotics. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Sarah Brunner. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sarah Brunner and her tick disease journey, please visit her Instagram at Soul Nutrition Consulting. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.